One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Other Hand is part of the Acast Creator Network. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the latest edition of The Other Hand, my podcast with Chris Johns. This morning, we have a returning guest on the show, Shane O'Mara, who is Professor of Experimental Brain Research at Trinity College Dublin. He's the Principal Investigator and was Director of the Trinity College Institute of Neuroscience. He has written three books, the Why Torture, sorry, four books, actually. I beg your pardon, Shane. Why Torture Doesn't Work, A Brain for Business in Praise of Walking. And his latest book that we discussed with him on a podcast called Talking Heads. Shane is also author of a fantastic Substack site called Brain Pizza. So I'd recommend anybody to connect with Brain Pizza because Shane, I think, is bringing to neuroscience a level of understanding that most people certainly don't get from neuroscience. So, Shane, you're very welcome to joining us this morning. Thanks, Jim. If I might just add my six months worth here as well. One of the things that we're going to try to do with this semi-regular guest, Shane, uh, we, we plan to have, have him on uh, not every week, but certainly reasonably frequently, is to connect up some themes that have really interested us, Jim and I, over the past while. In economics and finance, there is a field called behavioral finance and behavioral economics. The two heavily overlap. And that means that when Jim and I talk on our pod about various things, in fact, not just economics and finance, we often find ourselves discussing human psychology and ask the question why we do certain things and pose certain puzzles. And it it struck us from connecting with Shane that he would be a great person to talk about all this stuff with. So in that spirit, it's a bit of an experiment, a bit of a psychological experiment, but so far it's worked brilliantly. The feedback from listeners to the pods that we've done with Shane already has been fantastic and the numbers are great. So thank you very much for that, Shane. The conversation, as always, is intended to be freewheeling and we will go off at on unintended tangents. That's the nature of this podcast. But to give it some structure, what we want to do today is focus on a couple of authors that have written pieces both recently and a few years ago, 
very different authors. I sent the two guys a piece by somebody called Matthew Syed, who's a journalist, writer, broadcaster of some renown, actually, now in the United Kingdom. I don't know whether our Irish audience will have ever heard of him, but he's a regular commenter and writer, broadcaster on TV. His column appears, for example, in the Sunday Times, the British Weekly, and he writes all sorts of interesting stuff, not all of which I agree with, some of which I disagree with violently, actually, but it's always well written and it's always very interesting. And it often contains appeal to and references to the psychological literature in some shape or form. And he's written something recently that I would like to begin the discussion with. Relatedly, one another of my favorite authors is an economist, an interesting chap called Andrew Haldane. Used to be, until very recently, the chief economist of the Bank of England. Very interesting man. He resigned that post to become the boss of something called the Royal Society of Arts. I have nothing but huge admiration for somebody that, relatively late on in their careers, decides to have a complete switch of career and leave an awful lot of what they did before behind and deploy their talents to something else. It speaks to something of the human condition that I all often talk about with my own kids, actually, that the capacity for reinvention, don't underestimate it if you have the confidence and, of course, the ability to do so. We often think that uh, things will stay the same forever, but they don't They don't have to. Shane and Jim, uh, I don't know which where you want to start, but I did ask you to read this Matthew Syed article, which talked about the world having a right hemisphere problem. And this, to summarize what he was saying, he, he talked about people that have experienced damage or lesions to the right side of their brain and the way in which they then fail to understand context or metaphor and are plagued by something called literal mindedness. And he talks about what the behavioral traits that these people then go on to display. And he gives the example Putting it most simply, he asks Al, the patient, how do you feel? And because the patient can only interpret this question literally, without context, without metaphor, he answers without any change in voice, tone, or facial expression. He's not being funny. When asked how does he feel, he says, with my hands. Syed takes this example and says that Western civilization is showing growing signs of right hemisphere damage and that we are living through an increasingly context-blind, literalist age. Cancel culture, the assault on history, political polarization, the deficit of irony and nuance, particularly in the online world, all seem to conform to this pattern. He does blame the online world for this, in the way we, we tend to see things literally, without context, without nuance, and he blames a lot of modern ills on this. I think he overstates his case somewhat, but I think it's very interesting. And I think it's very interesting the way in which he blames social media in particular. I have a slightly different take on this. And it's, it's the, my take is actually in the form of a question, question for both of you, actually, as, as well as this literal context-free, nuance-free state of mind that has led to many of the issues that are plaguing us today. One of the things I see all around me in my own profession, in politicians and just down the pub is the absolute certainty with which people hold their views. Whatever they're thinking about, whether it's the performance of their football team or Rishi Sunak or Mary Lou MacDonald or what's going to be in the forthcoming budget, in economics and finance, people are forecasting that bond yields are going to be higher forever and that's causing all sorts of problems in markets at the moment. And everybody holds these views with absolute certainty. And the probabilistic world that we all know that we live in 
the highly uncertain world that we know that we all live in is chucked out of the window. Would you agree? I'll start with you, Shane, that I, I'm onto something there. Uh, yes, I think you are onto something there. Uh, so the, there's kind of a, a couple of things that are, are worth maybe focusing on. One is is this attempt to get away from complexity, which I think has an ironic reflection in uh, Haldane's papers, where he's saying we're actually getting too complex, where certain kinds of decision making are concerned. But I, I think it's an extremely online phenomenon. And if you're not on Twitter, uh, as I'm not, you don't experience all the, the rush of madness from all the ostensibly thousands and thousands of people responding to to your uh, your tweets. So I, I think it is a, a more an online phenomenon, and there's an offline phenomenon uh, which we forget about. You know, we're in danger here of of uh, just looking at what we can see. But as we speak, there are students in classrooms everywhere. There are students in lecture halls. There are people reading books. There are people writing papers. There are people doing their normal jobs day in day out, for whom all of this fluff in the background is not something uh, that they're really going to pay much attention to. We don't really have a good sense of what it is that the average person is processing. What we have is a good sense of what it is that's before our eyes in terms of, of what we can see here and now. And I, and I do think that actually is also a bit of a problem. I, I kind of disagree with both of you, I have to say. Chris, you were slightly critical of Matthew piece um, Shane, you're talking about all of this occurs in the online world and that there is another world. But surely the disproportionate impact that social media has on driving policy, you know, is absolutely phenomenal. I mean, where I disagree with Chris, I think Matthew Syed is really onto something here because, you know, he talks about the the manner in which people like Abraham Lincoln and Churchill have undergone retrospective condemnation and people are judged by today's standards of what they did hundreds of years ago in many cases. But what drives this agenda is social media. I mean, if I stood up in a conference this morning and spoke about these things, you know, it wouldn't get any attention. But social media, if you do it on social media, it gets magnified dramatically. So I I, I think uh, there's a lot more to this, this literalism. And, as, you know, Chris was talking about how views now are so trenchant one way or the other. I think as economists, both Christmas have over the years would have learned that and we, we constantly speak about it. There is no certainty whatsoever. Everything is uncertain. And, you, and any economist who holds certain views, as I unfortunately once did in my career, it haunts you forever. Can I just jump in there, James, and Jim, and say, I think that, that, that one of the things that you said there is incredibly important and relates back to what Shane was saying about how, yes, there's a huge cohort of people that are relatively unaffected by this stuff. And you talked about students reading books, professors writing books. And I think those points are very, very well made. I'll start with a simple story about how even the world of education has been changed by technology in general and social media in particular. And you've probably experienced this yourself, Shane. I've got a friend who's a professor of history in the United States, and she tells me about uh, years ago when she would start the year, the academic year, as it is just starting now, she would go into the first lecture and the students, all 18 years old, all still children, really, young adults, shall I say less pejoratively, were behaving like school kids. And they'd all be talking and, and loudly and, and messing and doing the sort of things that school kids often do, very excited on the first day of new term, very excited to be on their first new journey of young adulthood. And it was always a bit of an effort during the first lecture or two 
to get them to shut up, to calm down and listen to what she has to say in the lecture. She says, today, it's completely and utterly different. She comes into the lecture theatre, all these new 18-year-olds sitting there, and there is stony silence, absolute silence, because every single one of them is on their phone. And, and that's one of the way in which the world has changed. Our attention, our interaction with each other has been changed by this technology. Well, well, let me throw an anecdote straight back at you, because all you're giving me is an anecdote. I met our first year tutorial class last week. There was no chatter. They weren't looking at their phones. They asked question after question after question, and they were completely engaged. These are the ones, this was their first week in college. This was their first encounter, myself and a a colleague who were were teaching a a joint course to them, uh, which is quite a demanding course where we were very clear we're stepping them up from the leaving cert to a new way of thinking. They're not on their phones. They are actually engaged. Well, I, um, I hope your anecdote is, is more, more like the data than mine. Absolutely. And, um, and, and Shane, if, if I may interject and say that is exactly my experience as well. I teach an MBA class in Smurf at UCD. The students are incredibly engaged. They're in, not 18, Jim. They're not 18. No, but they are students. And you know, they, they are of the My group last week were 18, 19, and there's a seriousness of purpose about them, which I really, really admire. And there's That's a level of engagement. Yeah. Uh, that, that is encouraging. But yeah, point- no, I, 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 I'm not convinced by the, these stories. And I, I wonder, is there a kind of a selection bias in terms of people's memories? They've got a rosy retrospection back to 25 years ago when they started teaching first. Truth is, I don't remember the lectures from, that I used to give in the 1990s. Um, One of my favourite sayings is that memory is a very, very unreliable friend. And so that, that is a point well taken. Anecdote is not data. Absolutely, Shane. Jim's point about policy, I think, is more substantive. And that what we can see is that somehow or other, the, the world is moving right. And that uh, social media has been harnessed to shift the world right. We've got upcoming elections in Poland, which is expected to throw throw up a a frighteningly right-wing government. We've had a pro-Putin person elected in Slovakia last weekend. We all know about Donald Trump and um, his increasingly lunatic positioning on so many different things and the the crazy things that he, he says. We know what's happening in the UK uh, with the essentially the, the, the final takeover of the Conservative Party by the hard right is unfolding before our very eyes in Manchester this week. It's the most extraordinary political pantomime circus thing that, that I've seen in a long time. If you thought the Brexit years were, were, were a spectacle, just pay some attention to what's going on in, and the kind of speeches up that are being made, the comeback of the hard right politicians like Liz Truss, Liz Truss in particular, speaking to packed out audiences on the fringe of this conference. All of this is being harnessed, I think, by social media in, in, in particular. And it's just full of people who are absolutely certain of their views. Liz Truss, despite all of the evidence to the contrary this time last year, is claiming she was right. So this is evidence, fact-free belief that seems to dominate our world of, of people who are absolutely certain with these beliefs, I think, being fed by, by social media. And your point about the majority of people in the world not being on Twitter is absolutely right, Shane. The Twitter itself is in trouble because its number of users is at best static um, and at worst, for, from its perspective, falling. And I agree that it's, it's a total cesspit. 
and its user base worldwide in, in a world population of multiple billions is less than 300 million the last time I looked. So, so yes, the numbers do back up your, your claim that Twitter is a minority and increasingly minority taste. But we do seem to live in a world of polarization and a world of certainty, whether or not it's caused by social media. Do you think that Syed is right, that it's a right brain problem? No. I'm going to be very blunt about that. This, there, I'm going to use a swear word, if you don't mind. There's a, a phrase that goes around, which is neurobollocks. I love it. We use it to each other all the time. The, 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 the more palatable version is neuromyth. Uh, the truth is you're not left-brained or right-brained. You are whole-brained. And what Saeed has done is taken cases and misinterpreted what they might mean. So if you damage your right hemisphere and you show this apparent literalness, what is actually happening there? Is it because you've got damage to the right hemisphere or because the circuit in the left hemisphere is now disinhibited? Because the two sides of your brain are connected to each other. The, the kind of phenomena he's he's pointing a finger at, I think is the right thing, but it's the wrong metaphor. We, we really, really need to get away from thinking in this kind of way that uh, there, there's a, a simple, oh, my right brain, right hemisphere is overactive in, in this area. There is a phenomenon and he's on the money where that's concerned. But the metaphor that he's using to explain it is not one that we can take seriously, at least not, not from a, a neuroscience uh, point of view. So he, he's got something right. There is a retreat by certain people from complexity, but he's got something very wrong, which is the metaphor that he's using uh, to interpret it. Shane, if, if I may ask you, he writes that literalistic thinking goes too far. Oh, sorry, when it goes too far, communication becomes impossible. And in the context of your recent book, Talking Heads, where you spoke about the power of talking, conversation, etc., what is driving this literalistic thinking? Oh, in this case, I think the incentives is what we should be looking at. And the incentives are, are very clear. You know, if you're extremely online and you're on Twitter, uh, what you're looking for is retweets and likes. Uh, and you get a charge from or a, a, a little buzz of reward from uh, seeing your tweet go viral. All these people are apparently engaging with you. Uh, and that kind of thing does uh, give people a reward. Uh, but the problem is they, they start to think like this is the real world. But actually, what's the half-life of a tweet? You know, it, it, it's it's what? Uh, it passes quickly through working memory and it's gone. Can you remember the 10th last tweet you read? No, you but if I, if I ran for election in the morning, a tweet that I may have sent out 10 years ago. Yeah, probably... that might sink you. But the, the smart thing to do is just not to engage with it at all. And you see here, I, I, I don't know what the polls in the UK are like, but uh, the smart polls here aren't on Twitter or they have a minimalist uh, presence. Uh, our Minister for Education, Norma Foley, for example, is never in the wars. Um, she's never in fights. And she has no Twitter presence. Uh, or she has a, a, a minimalist uh, presence. And I'm sure that's true for lots of other smart polls that you just keep away from the cesspit that is social media. Because uh, there's every sort of crazy uh, out there. And now we hear them and think that their voices dominate. But actually, they're what? Fractions of a percent of the population. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. What is your explanation? And it, it may well not be a neurological explanation for all of this extreme certainty that we have out there and the certainty of the, uh, the, the right wing lurch of our politics and policies. So that, that's a very complicated question, Chris. An honest answer is a complicated answer, unfortunately. It what do is, you think is going? You know, the, the, 200, I, I, the 200 lulas that were, that were demonstrating outside the Doyle last week, they are part of this morass that I'm describing here. Yeah. They, they, have, they have a set of views that most people could these days predict in terms of being anti-vax, pro-Trump, pro-Putin. Uh, we, know, we know the list of things that these people, once you've got one of these views, you have them all. That, that's one of the extraordinary features of this new, the new right. Um, they're pretty fundamentalist about most things. Where does it come from? It's a tendency that has always been present in every human population and always will be. There are people who take it upon themselves to police the limits of what's acceptable within society. And we've had that in Ireland since independence and we had it under uh, our previous rulers uh, as well. We, we've had uh, books that were censored. We've had films that were censored. We've had a, a variety of uh, individuals who think it appropriate uh, to define the boundaries of what it is that's acceptable within society. And those boundaries move over time. Um, they go by a variety of different names. Uh, you, can call them, you can call it the authoritarian personality, for example, um, and when you run these large-scale personality surveys on, on large populations, consistently you will find about 20 to 25% of every population in every country has this tendency to run from complexity and to embrace simplicity, but also a willingness to circumscribe the freedoms of others. I sense a great deal of optimism in you about how these things can, can be overcome and your sense that this is the, the state we're in has always been true. I might push back slightly by saying that, yes, okay, 25% of us have been susceptible to the authoritarian personality throughout all of the history that we know about, such, such as it is. But we also know that at particular points in human history, we've been more susceptible perhaps than at other times, and that at particular points in our history, these kind of people, the authoritarians, have taken over and done great damage to our countries, to our societies, to our world. I've been reading recently about the rise of Mussolini and how he uh, very cleverly essentially took over Italy and turned it into a fascist state in the 1930s. And like a lot of these people today, interestingly, he started out on the left and moved steadily rightwards as he realized that, that that was the way in which he could persuade people that they needed to be led and that the way in which you persuade people is that you point out that everything else everybody else is failing them in terms of usually their economic circumstances and that they need a strong leader. And the rest, as they say, is history. And surely the worry now is that, yeah, it's, it's all very well to say we've always had this tendency to be 
welcoming to strong men, usually. There is a strong woman in Italy at the moment. And we are going into one of those very potentially dark periods that we have experienced before. Why, why, why do we not learn from these periods of history? And given how much we know about uncertainty and about how probabilistic the universe is, we, you know, our scientists have taken us down the road of quantum mechanics that, that describe the fundamental behavior of the entire universe in terms of probabilistic fields. We know that everything in finance and economics is uncertain. And yet, I go back to this point, I know I'm being repetitive, we are willingly going down the road, at least enough of us are, following people who say, I know how the world works, it's not working for you, and I know how to make it work for you. Yeah, if you're desperate, you'll try anything, you know. Um, there's the old line that you've used many times about, well, our GDP is increasing, and the reply is, uh, well, that's not my GDP. If you're in a losing position, doubling down is, is uh, as reasonable a way of dealing with your situation as any any other. But I, I would make a couple of points. You know, think, think about the history of Ireland just for a moment to keep it local. We had a very authoritarian state regime here, which uh, forbade divorce, forbade contraception, and a whole variety of other things. Banned books for many, many years, uh, all of that kind of thing. The far-right groupings are not attempting to bring us back to those days, and they will lose if they try. So the, the freedoms that we have gained and the loss of the authoritarian control that we were subjected to is not coming back. And there's no way that Giorgio Maloney is going to bring fascism back to Italy of the uh, Mussolini sort. Um, so I, I think that circumstance has changed. I think there's another way of, of being a little bit callous about this, which is to say, well, what's the run these people get before the tide goes out and you see who's uh, not wearing any uh, swimming trunks to use Warren Buffett's uh, measure? It's a couple of years. And we know from a variety of sources now that voting for populists makes you poorer. And the last thing people want to be in this life is poorer. They may be willing to vote against their own economic interests if they can afford it for other reasons, but they're not going to do it on a persistent basis if it does make them poorer. And then just to think about the polarization for a minute, one of the things that has happened with the internet is, of course, these people have got together. They were, they were able to connect. But what we're forgetting is, at the same time, there are lots of civil society groups that get together that do all sorts of good things. You have charities that get together. You've got spontaneous online collections, which uh, were happening for Ukraine, for example, in terms of clothing and lots of other things. And, and we focus necessarily on the bad stuff. But what we need to do is, is to think that there are also norms of charity, there are norms of civility and other things that are supported also by online activity. And okay, we have a, a group that turns up at the Doyle. They're getting an identity-based kind of charge out of being there. There are around people who have similar kinds of views. But at the same time, we have hundreds of charities around the country that are doing all sorts of great things. There's lots and lots of other things going on. And I, I, I think we have the problem here of being uh, focusing on what we can see and addressing that and not looking at all the other stuff. We're, we're kind of like the drunk looking for the key uh, under the lamp. Yeah, Chris, you, you have a tendency to blame everything on the far right. I mean, what, what about the far left? Um, if you look at what the far left did in this country, for example, a few years ago over water charges um, with Joan Burton, who was a minister in the government at the time. Um, and we have, in my view, a centre left government in this country at the moment, despite 
what people claim. I mean, if you look at government expenditure, if you look at taxation, it is consistent with a slightly left of center um, political and economic ideology, in my view. And they are becoming more and more controlling in our lives. I mean, the level of legislation that's been increasingly introduced. It's, I think the left is actually trying to exert more and more control over our lives rather than the right. Jim, I think you do me a slight injustice. Um, it's increasingly fashionable to criticise the horseshoe theory of politics, but I am a close adherent of it. I think the far left is as bad as the far right, and they do meet themselves almost in the shape of a horseshoe. And if you look at some of the views of the extreme left, they are sometimes indistinguishable from the the far right. Um, they, they, they meet themselves going backwards, if you like. And so I... I have as much criticism for the far left as I do of, of, of the far right. And I am firmly in the, the radical centre of politics, if that's not an, an oxy, oxymoron. Thank you, Chris. Shane, if I may ask you about the future, um, I'm reading a book at the moment called The Coming Wave by Mustafa Suleiman. It's about AI and the threat from AI. And I'll just read one quote here. AIB has been climbing the ladder of cognitive abilities for decades and it now looks set to reach human-level performance across a very wide range of tasks within the next three years. How do you feel AI is going to drive what we've been discussing? I'm going to jump in here, Jim, because I think you just made, and if I might make a psychological comment about this, a Freudian slip there. Instead of saying AI, you belied your your history. You said AIB. (laughs) You did. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I know you're. Yeah, very... I thought you were going to tell me something amazing about how. I thought, I thought this was going to be a, a, a sort of a diatribe against banking. But... Uh, I can I can assure you, Chris, that AIB hasn't climbed any ladder of cognitive ability. Um, Sorry, I digress, Shane. Yeah, I, I'm actually uh, delighted by these developments. Um, I think uh, the the data that we have already show that. Uh, where AI augment performance, it's uh, uh, the performance of the people who are the worst performers. So in call centers, for example, large language models are have been found and demonstrated in lots of, of circumstances now to assist people who are bad at responding to customer queries and they drag their uh, performance up. They don't tend to affect the people that are at the top level of performance, especially. And it has been the case that... Uh, machine uh, learning approaches or statistic, large statistical models have been approaching human levels of performance or exceeding them for a long time now. You know, you don't play chess against a computer anymore because the, the chess machine is, is, or the chess programs can beat humans quite readily. And that's okay. I, I, don't, I don't think we should be terribly worried about these things. I think like every previous technological revolution we've gone through, it will remove drudgery from our lives. A lot of the opposition that we see to the use of AI is is founded in, on the impulse that humans are going to lose out. Now, where I think there is a problem is actually a very straightforward one. It's not one of the Skynet coming to eat us in uh, a couple of years' time or 20 years' time or whatever. It's to do with how these systems are trained now. Uh, so the, the, the paper came out yesterday showing that... Uh, the uh, autonomous cars are more likely to hit dark-skinned rather than uh, white-skinned individuals. And this is because the training algorithms have been uh, run principally on white-skinned individuals. 
we see with the the, the large language models, uh, they're stealing intellectual property. There's 140,000 books that have been used and the authors of those books, uh, their IP has been used to train these models and they get no return. They, there's a loads and loads of issues in the here and now that I think we should be worried about. But in terms of the systems themselves, I think uh, they will augment human performance across a wide range of, of areas and they'll do so for good reasons. You know, take a drug company, for example, large portfolio of molecules uh, and we've got a large unmet need for uh, a, a variety of different conditions. Alzheimer's disease being the one that I, I, I would have the most specialist knowledge of. Drug companies have libraries of millions of compounds, train the AI on the molecules and the conditions and the outputs of a bunch of other things. Humans can't do that very easily, but the AI can come up with seven, eight, seven or eight or 10 candidate molecules pretty easily. There's lots of use cases like that that are very specific, but this intelligence that they offer isn't autonomous. Uh, it's one that humans are directing. Um, so cars came along and put farriers out of business, but we're not going to go back to having farriers anymore. Uh, <laughs> I think the point you make is absolutely right, but it speaks to one of the concerns I have. And um, I'm uh, lifted by your, your optimistic take on several of the issues that we've discussed in this pod, Shane. And it will cause me to revisit some of my more pessimistic forecasts, dare we say. But that you're describing something that we've invented the washing machine and laundries are complaining at the moment about being driven out of business. But eventually we will all realize that the world could do with less laundries and people bashing clothes and that machines can do it for us. But it's the, the path from here to there. It's going, if you like, from one equilibrium to another. It's the adjustment process. And that's going to be and already is very turbulent because as we have had automation for many years since before artificial intelligence, we see that one of the reasons why we had Brexit in the UK and Donald Trump in the United States was these so-called left behind communities that no longer do the manufacturing jobs that the machines do today. And it, it's, it's how we get from here to there and the processes and turbulence, political turbulence in particular, that that, that throws up that worries me. And that can be quite a chaotic process rather than some smooth transition to a new and better equilibrium. More philosophically or even psychologically, if you like, is that once we are freed completely from drudgery and you know, ultimately freed from the need to work at all if technology keeps going, what are we all going to do with ourselves? And this is where the psychology of this come, comes into it. If, if you like, and crudely and overly simplistically, this is Maslow's hierarchy of needs. How are we ever all going to self-actualize? We are very bad at it, aren't we? Yeah, but what I think we'll end up doing is uh, if we're freed from drudgery and we get down to a three-day week or something like this, Bertrand Russell wrote... Uh, in praise of idleness, uh, <laughs> I think it was 70 or 80 years ago, Keynes wrote something similar about what his grandchildren, <laughs> who were us, uh, were, were going to, to experience. I think what we'll end up doing is we'll be literally doing that, buying experiences. We will look to do things with our lives that uh, we don't have the time and space to do now. That might be hiking across uh, the uh, Sally Gap, <laughs> or it might be parachute jumping, it might be any number of other things. But humans are very good at meaning making. We will find meaning in all sorts of things that uh, we, we wouldn't otherwise necessarily have contemplated doing. Uh, we might cycle a lot more, we might run a lot more, we, we will do other things. And we're very good at that. And we actually have a use case that we can look to. 
if uh, you look at the activity levels of people like the Hadza in Tanzania, who are a, a tribal society, they spend about five or six hours a day sitting around in groups, gossiping, having fun, laughing, joking, doing all the stuff that humans do, uh, <laughs> that, that, that humans would do had we not to spend our time actually at work. They have, live in a society or in, in a rather in, in an ecology where uh, once they make the major kills and they bring back the, the fruits, the veg and all the rest of it, they don't have to do much work. So what do they do? They do what humans do. They sit around and chat. Shane, we're running out of time. I do admire your optimism and I take great heart from it. I'm a great fan of cliche and aphorisms and old fashioned sayings, but there's an old one. I can't remember the exact wording, but about idle hands make the devil's work. I'm not as convinced as you look just looking around me that we are capable of filling our lives once we're not able once we don't have to work as much as we did before. We could talk all day about this. That's certainly all from me. Jim, do you want to wrap up? Yeah, I'll wrap up. Listen, Shane, um, I really appreciate and enjoy your optimism as well. I'm a little bit with Chris. I'd be uh, not quite as optimistic about the future, but I can assure Chris I'll bring him down to the Cumberland Mountains in Waterford if he's trying to pass time. Uh, Thanks Shane, very much. Thank you very much for your contribution again and really look forward to talking to you the next time, okay? Thank you. Likewise. Thank you, thank you very that much. That was really Chris. enjoyable. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on The Other Hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated. 